Hey guys, it's Dan Martin and it's on education. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the controversial topic of critical race theory. Uh, we'll be going over the five main tenets of, of uh, critical race theory. And we'll look a little bit at the origins of the theory. We'll also be looking at uh, evidence to suggest that it's taught in the schools or not taught in the schools. And we'll also look at some census data to look at possible alternative reasons why there is a wealth gap between the Caucasian community and the African-American community. And so uh, I'm looking forward to diving deep into the subject. Hope you are too. So let's start right away. So why a look at critical race theory? Uh, I think the reason that I became so interested in it is that depending on who you talk to about the theory, it's uh, presented in different ways. Uh, the proponents of it say it's just a more honest look at our country and our history, while others see it as a radical idea that's being pushed to our kids, uh, making them feel uh, like because uh, making them feel that they are racist because of the color of their skin. And so I wanted to take a look at it, see if it's being taught in the schools, uh, try to figure out exactly uh, what the theory is and present it in a way that looks at it from a uh, educated point of view. And so uh, without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, so when I was doing uh, the research on this, I looked at several different definitions of critical race theory, and I was really looking for proponents of the theories and uh, looking for their definitions. And uh, I went through several, and this is the one uh, that I chose because it was the, the most readable and understandable as far as I was concerned anyway. So uh, this comes from the British Education Research Association online resource. I have it listed here if you're watching this on, on YouTube and not listening to, uh, to it. Um, and um, if, if you are listening to it on, on Podbean or some other podcast um, uh, medium, uh, you're more than welcome to go to YouTube and, and check out the uh, the uh, resources that I have listed. It says here, CRT is a body of scholarship steeped in racial activism that seeks to explore and challenge the prevalence of racial inequality in society. It is based on the understanding that race and racism are the product of social thought and power uh, relations. CRT theories endeavor to expose the way in which racial inequality is maintained through the operation of structures and assumptions that appear normal and unremarkable. And so, you know, when I read this, uh, it, it seems like uh, the underpinning is a underlying racism uh, that is accepted as being normal. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at the five tenets of this theory and explore deeper its meaning. Okay, so let's talk about the uh, the first tenet of CRT. Uh, it says uh, centrality of racism. Uh, CRT begins 
with a number of basic insights. One is that racism is normal, not aberrant in American society. Because racism is an ingrained feature of our landscape, it looks ordinary and natural to persons in the culture. Okay, so when, when I read this, I had to look up the word aberrant. And aberrant means departing from an acceptable standard. And so what I like to do is I like to turn that around and say uh, that they feel like racism is an accepted part of our culture uh, that is not seen as being abnormal at all or something that we don't want. It says here that CRT regards racism as so deeply entrenched in the social order that it is often taken for granted and viewed as natural. CRT scholars emphasize that racism does not necessarily operate in crude, explicit forms, but operates in a socio-political context where it becomes where it is becoming more embedded and increased uh, nuance. Racism can be uh, evidence in the outcome of processes and, re and relations irrespective of intent. And so uh, I think they feel like that racism is prevalent, that sometimes it's not in you don't intend to be racist, but you are racist because of the structures of society and how we go about doing our business. And, and I want to tell you, I, I started this thing several times and started researching it several times, and I found this to be so insulting and so um, against the way that I believe uh, that it made it hard for me to go on. And as I read through these things, I think that they think that people don't want to address it because it makes them feel uncomfortable. And so uh, let's keep on and, and see what else they say. Okay, and so um, this is not part of the tenets, uh, but I wanted to look at uh, their definition of racism. And I found this uh, in a separate article entitled Racism as an Ideology, um, and it's from the Salem Press Encyclopedia 2022. And so uh, the significance here, they say, is racism can be described as an ideology, a belief that helps to maintain the status quo. More specifically, racism refers to the belief that one's race is superior to other races in significant ways. And the superior race in, is entitled by virtue of its superiority to dominate other races and to enjoy a larger share of society's wealth and status. Uh, so <laughs> uh, this is a little tricky. There are bits of truth in here. And then there are things that I, I would not agree to. Uh, the first thing is racism refers to the belief that one race is superior to the other other races. I, I do believe that that is what racism is all about, mm -hmm. is this uh, view that you're superior because of the color of your skin. Um, I do not believe that it helps to maintain the status quo. <laughs> I, I don't believe that that's the status quo of our society. I don't think that most people believe that their skin color entitles them to a bigger portion of the American dream. I, I don't believe that that is true at all. I believe that we are a merit-based society, uh, that uh, the American dream is that, that you can succeed because 
of the quality of your ideas, the hard work that you put into your ideas, the willingness to sacrifice, uh, and so forth. So um, I think that this is a kind of a disturbing uh, definition of racism because it has merits. You know, it has certain parts that are true and then has other ideas that I, I don't feel are correct. Okay, so the second ten, uh, the second tenet of uh, CRT is white supremacy. Uh, understanding the role of power of white supremacy in creating and reinforcing racial subordination and maintaining a normalized white privilege is central to the CRT imperative to reveal and oppose racial inequality. And uh, so again, they say that uh, it's not necessarily um, a crude white supremacist group uh, like the Klan or uh, I don't know any other number of radical groups, uh, skinheads, etc. They say they refer instead to a political, economic, and cultural system in which whites overwhelmingly control power and material resources, uh, conscious and unconscious ideas of white superiority and entitlement are widespread. And relations of white dominance and non-white subordination are daily reenacted across a broad array of institutions and social settings. And so uh, this is the idea that, uh, you know, white culture uh, dominates and is thought to be superior by white people. And they have this entitlement that they believe that they uh, uh that they are entitled to a bigger part of the American dream than anybody else. And um, I, I just don't believe that that is true. Um, I just went and kind of wanted to look at some statistics in terms of population. And um, and so uh, in 20, uh, the population uh, was compared in 20 and 21. And uh, let's look at those. Uh, I think I have those on the next slide. Okay, so if we look at uh, the percentage of, of white, white folks as compared to other minorities, in 1920, uh, the percentage of, of white Americans, I'm sorry, not 1920, 2020, <laughs> the percentage of white Americans was 63.8%. And in 2021, it went down to 59.3%. Hispanic and Latinos uh, for 2020 were 16.4, and it went up to 18.9% in 2021. Uh, black non-Hispanics uh, grew slightly between the two years. 2020, it was 12.3 and 12.6%. And so I guess... The, the thing that I want to highlight is there's substantially more uh, white Anglo folks in our country as as opposed to uh, blacks, Hispanics and so forth. And, you know, when you watch TV or you look at cultural events uh, or you look at corporations, uh, uh, I think that they value uh, minority groups and are seeking to recruit minority groups as part of their uh, plan to grow their businesses. And, and certainly when you watch TV commercials, uh, you see a lot of, of folks of color. You see a lot of uh, Hispanic folks, uh, folks. You see 
same-sex couples, mixed-race couples, and so forth, probably to a higher extent than the actual percent of those people in our population. I also wanted to point out that between the years of 1961 and 2019, I think it was the year that I looked at, uh, there were tons of civil rights legislation, uh, tons of equal opportunity legislation to try to make sure that we have a fair playing field uh, in our businesses and in our government institutions. And uh, so uh, I do have uh, listed here uh, the uh, website that uh, gives a history of the affirmative action programs uh, between the years of 1961 to the present. And I count it no less than 30, uh, 30 plus uh, incidences of legislation, appointments, and executive orders to provide people of color with equal access to education and job opportunities. And so uh, I provided that and you can peruse that uh, if you if you would like. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but I got an important question for you. Do you have a special skill or talent that you need to share with the world? Maybe you're an excellent photographer, or maybe you're an excellent woodworker, or crafter, or cook. Uh, there are any number of things that people do every day and really enjoy and do well that they need to share with others. And so let the good people at Teachable lead you through the process of designing your own online course. It's really enjoyable, plus you can make some extra money, and I've included a link down below. Uh, maybe uh, your special talent is commenting on videos and uh, blogs. And so uh, there, there is a place called uh, Paid Online Writing Jobs, and I've included a post down below. Uh, where you can make money per hour uh, reviewing and writing for others. And so this is a real cool site as well. Maybe you got that uh, back to school blues and you're, you're dreading going out to the stores to buy school supplies for your students. And I'm going to encourage you this year to do a lot of your shopping online. One thing, you don't have to buy from depleted uh, uh, store shelves. Uh, you can always pick exactly what you want and find exactly what you need. So I'll provide a Walmart link down below where you can go and shop for your school supplies. Now when you click on an affiliate link of mine, it won't ever cost you anything extra, but I'll get a small, small percentage of the sale that will help me create more content for you. So hopefully you're enjoying the, the podcast and we'll get right back to it. Thanks. Okay, so the, the third idea in CRT is entitled Voices of People of Color. It says CRT places particular importance on the voices and experiences of people of color through insights into the operation of racism and, the, and their understanding of being racially uh, minoritized. Okay, and so um, I agree 100% with that. I think that... Uh, that this is uh, super important to listen to people who are in minority groups. I kind of take a little, a little, I don't know how to say this, a, a little uh, drawn back by this minoritized statement. Um, I don't think that white people minoritize people of color. People of color are in the minority in our country right now. And we'll look at some statistics to uh to emphasize that 
uh, that this our population is changing and people of color are becoming more prevalent. And and I, I think that that diversity has always been good in our country. But I think I don't think that we minoritize people. But certainly, I think listening to minorities and listening to their point of view and understanding each other is key to having a society where uh, we, we can all thrive together and appreciate each other. So this goes on to say such accounts sometimes take the form of storytelling or counter narrative and may be uh, semi autobiographical or allegorical in nature. And so <laughs> it's been a while since I've had freshman English, so I had to look up allegorical. Allegorical means a fictional account or uh, or I, I look at it as being kind of <clears throat> uh, somewhat historical fiction. Um, as a tool, storytelling can act as a powerful means of enabling racially minoritized groups to speak back about racism and facilitate psychic uh, preservation, a means of psychological and spiritual empowerment in response to the depleting effects of racism. And, and so I have no problem at all with that. I think that, you know, like I said, understanding each other is key. Uh, you can't totally understand somebody uh, without uh, really listening and, and maybe experiencing some of the same things uh, as a way of um, of, uh, of explaining my background on that is that my folks uh, come from eastern Kentucky and um, we moved to Bowling Green which is in south central Kentucky when I was a very small child and uh, I always saw cartoons and heard people talk about hillbillies and talk um, in disparaging ways about people of the mountains and, and so forth and I, I really didn't understand uh, how that was hurtful to my parents until I spent a substantial amount of time in eastern Kentucky both with my grandparents and in high school and college doing a thing called the Appalachia Service Project, where we work on homes of disadvantaged folks in Appalachia and uh, built porches, dug outhouses, insulated painting and all sorts of things. And I really grow uh, grew to understand the culture, the people, uh, their their challenges, their strengths. And so I think really to understand each other, you know, you've got to live and work with people. And certainly my appreciation of people of color increased substantially when I began to teach because I had all sorts of kids in my classroom from all sorts of backgrounds. And so I, I do think it's really important uh, to get to know each other, uh, work with each other, uh, listen to each other. And so I think that this is a strong part of the CRT uh theory, even though I disagree with a lot of the other parts. <laughs> All right, so let's go on. Okay, so the uh, fourth tenet here is uh, interest, interest convergent, and so uh, convergence. So they say racism serves to reinforce and advance white supremacy, helping to maintain a status quo that while disproportionate or inequitable to racial minorities allows whites to uh, retain their positions of power. White people, therefore, have little incentive to work to eradicate racism. 
Okay, and then they go on to say, however, there are times when great race equality operates in the perceived interest of white people. And this notion of interest convergence helps to explain how advances can be achieved. The interest of blacks in achieving racial equality will be accommodated only when it converges with the interests of whites. Okay, and so they'll go on to say that they look at some of the advances of, of race relations, of, of uh, racial uh, progress, um, you know, these legislative uh, efforts, uh, the appointments of, uh, you know, of councils, of, uh, of uh, EEOC, equal opportunities for, for people of minorities. Um, you know, this legislation really doesn't change anything because the underpinning of it all is white interest. Uh, so, um, in other words, you, people can't do something that is right because it is the correct thing to do and it benefits them. Uh, sometimes you, you can't, uh, you know, in my thought is sometimes you just can't legislate success. And I guess in a way I agree with them that, you know, you can make all sorts of rules and, and regulations. Uh, you can have affirmative action programs. Uh, but uh, a lot of times it doesn't change the hearts and minds of people. Uh, but I do think that in our country, we've made great strides in race relations. Uh, it's not, nothing's perfect. Uh, uh, but, um, you know, just seeing it as uh, all these advances as a way of, of benefiting white people, I, I, I just I feel that that's uh, pretty cynical and I, I don't believe it. But uh, that's that's their theory. All right. So the, the fifth tenet here is one called intersectionality. And it states while CRT is centrally concerned with the structures and relations that maintain racial inequality, it does not operate to the exclusion of dis disregard of other forms of injustice. It is recognized that no person has a single, simple, unitary, unitary identity. Intersectionality, as originally advanced by Kimberly Kinshaw, speaks to an understanding of the complex and multiple ways in which various systems of subordination can come together at the same time. Adopting an intersectional framework allows for the exploration of differences within and between groups, taking account of issues such as historical and sociopolitical context while still maintaining awareness of racial inequalities. Okay, so I, I think what this means is that uh, there are different ways of discriminating, uh, not just by skin color, uh, but by other means as well uh, to maintain this white power structure uh, and uh, relate it to intersectionality as a concept of differential uh, radicalization, um, which is concerned uh, with the way in which dominant social uh, society uh, racializes and gives focus to different minority groups at different times to suit hegemonic arguments of racial superiority and inferiority. Uh, so uh, what this means is that you're uh, in the given example, 
of playing different racial groups against each other as a way of maintaining dominance uh, of uh, of stating that maybe Chinese and Indian students are uh, superior to uh you know, black students, uh, some sort of argument in, in that vein. Of course, that is, that is wrong. You know, everybody's an individual and, and shouldn't be just seen as part of a group. Um, and I do believe that maybe sometimes that does happen. Uh, of course, there are, uh, you know, little nuggets of truth in, and, uh, and sometimes, uh, a an argument that is full of fallacies uh, uh but you know I, I do think that there are multiple ways of discriminating against people uh, but i don't believe it is the dominant underpinning of our society and so um you know they they feel that it is in this theory uh so you know they they say pitting groups against each other uh others interests and analyzing the traits of successful people uh, might be um, uh, might be seen as being devious in some sort of way, but I, I think that it uh, uh, is certainly not uh, what we believe in in our society. Um, you know, I think that we celebrate success no matter where it comes from, and uh, instead of looking for uh, the uh, evil that exists, and, and it does exist. Uh, we should uh, look and uphold the good things in our society, the the things that we work together on and are successful in uplifting uh, the human spirit. So so that is uh, the fifth pillar here of CRT. OK, so now let's look at some of the origins of CRT. Uh, and this is from a group uh, called uh Discourses, uh, new discourses, uh, new discourses commentary. Okay, so uh, it says here to be critical in the social justice sense is to be aware of and resist systematic power and disrupt established systems and ways of thinking. Uh, this is understood as a form of activism to end systematic oppression by criticizing all systems and undermining them. Uh, it says also uh, subvert, uh, deconstruct, disrupt, dismantle, and revolution. It's not the same as critical as we encounter in critical thinking. In fact, it means something more specific. Uh, so all the things above there, uh, you know, they want to disrupt and dismantle the, the systems that they feel are oppressing uh, minorities. You know, it goes on here to say, though its ultimate origins may be pinnable to the German philosopher Immanuel Gnat, I guess, K-A-N-A-T, in, in this critical of, in his critique of pure reason, reason, the critical approach ultimately draws in the main form of Karl Marx. Marx saw criticism of the system itself as the vital first step in remaking the world, saying, I am referring to ruthless criticism of all that exists. Ruthless both in the sense of not being afraid of the results it arrives at, and in the sense of being just as little afraid of conflict with the powers that be. Therefore, criticism in the sense employed by critical theories 
also called neo-Marxism, post-Marxism, Marxism, and theory. The social justice is destructive, respectively. It is more interested in problem problematizing that that is finding ways in which and it goes on here to say that it can be reasonable or not reasonable and uh, other defiable actions building something uh, it should not be uh, confused with being constructive and so in, in in their opinion the goal is the destruction of our democratic system to rebuild a Marxist or socialism. They see oppressed and oppressors, they say. They want a central government that owns the means of power production. And so they say that the underpinning of critical theory is one of socialism, basically, and to uh, destroy uh, our our ways of uh, governing ourselves, uh, the uh, free market system, uh, capitalism, and so forth. So, uh, you know, I think that this is a very um, interesting look at CRT and, and one that we should be aware of uh, as we are entering into discussions uh, with those who may be sympathetic to, uh, to this theory. Okay, since the uh, central, one of the central tendencies or central thoughts of critical race theory is uh, about the uh, unequal distribution of wealth between uh, white Americans and ethnic groups, I thought it might be interesting to look at some data uh, uh, pertaining to that. And so um, I found this in a finance buzz uh, article, and I think they're looking at census data here. Uh, the article is entitled U.S. Net Worth Statistics, the State of Wealth in 2022. Uh, and uh, let's read off their, their summary here or other key findings. The median net worth in the United States is 121,700, which was up 17.6% from 2016. The average net worth is $748,800. And that was up uh, a little bit more modest, 2% from 2016. And so uh, we find here that the, the median here uh, grew uh, more than the average. And of course, what's not stated here is the inflation rate uh, during that time. And I believe the inflation rate was relatively low. Uh, so those gains uh, seem to me uh, to be pretty substantial. It says here, black and Hispanic families had strong gains in median net worth between 2016 and 2019, uh, 30% and 64% respectively. Uh, so the, the growth rate here was uh, substantial for, for black and Hispanic families. Um, so uh, they say, uh, though the typical white family still has three to seven times the net worth. And so I think that that is, is, a, is disturbing. And, and we'll look a little bit further about maybe some of the reasons why uh, this might uh, have occurred. Four-year college degree holders have a median net worth more than four times that of, of someone with only a high school diploma. So that continues to be a trend. Uh, I'd be interested to see 
if that continues to be the case or not, because I think less and less folks uh, will are, are probably going to college. I don't know that for a fact, but the cost of college tuition has has gotten to be where it outpaces uh, inflation substantially. And then it says the top 10% of households own 70%, 76% of the wealth, while 50% of households only just own 1% of the wealth. And we have some extremely wealthy people in our country, and uh, this may be a uh, a reflection of that uh, as well. Uh, so I don't think that that's uh, surprising at all. Uh, but having said that, we have a lot of people that have uh, have a lot of wealth and a lot of power in our country. You think about the Bill Gates uh, uh, people uh, like that Warren Buffett, Bill uh, Bezos uh, folks. Uh, they have a substantial amount of wealth in our country. Okay, so this is uh, some census data here. And it talks about the median income and the average income of people by education level. Uh, people that have no high school diploma uh, had a median income of $20,780 and an average income of $137,580. All right, that's a pretty wide gap there. And um, one of the things that I thought of was there are some people with relatively little education that do uh, really well in our country. The percentage of those people is probably very, very low. But those people that are very successful have high incomes, and that's probably why this average is higher than you would expect. But the median income, that's like right in the middle of all those folks, that's a better indicator of what's going on is $20,780. And you can see here that there is a big jump for those with a high school diploma. Uh, those folks earn on average, the median income for those folks is $73,890 uh, with an average of $304,590. So I, I think any more, a high school diploma is pretty well um, uh, you know, a, a requirement in our society today. Uh, the percentages of people with high school diplomas is really, really high. We'll see that in some other slides as we go through the data. Uh, college, uh, people with a college edu some college education uh, have $89,280 as their median income. So about $20,000 more than just a high school diploma. The average income is not that much higher it's $374,010. Okay, college degree. Here's where the big jump comes in. Folks with a college degree, uh, the median income is $308,800. And uh, the average is $1,516,091. Um, and so uh, these incomes, uh, grow substantially with the level of education that you're able to acquire. Um, I will say that uh, they, they did uh, say that folks, older folks, uh, tended to have more money than younger folks, and you would just expect that to be true across the board. They have more time to accumulate wealth uh, as they go along. Okay, 
So here we have some uh, interesting data about median and average net worth by family structure. And so uh, this was really interesting to me and kind of enlightening. Um, uh, so first they're discussing people that are single with no child age less than 55. So those folks probably just starting out uh, a lot of them. Uh, the median net worth was 15,700. And then uh, the uh, average net worth was 131,760. So uh, a pretty good net worth for uh, a wide range of people, really, uh, people that are just starting out in the workforce and then people who are well established. Um, and then they talk about single no child greater than 55. And so if you're a single person, uh, with no kids, uh, the median net worth is 119,500 and the median net worth, the average net worth, excuse me, is 444,900. Uh, so uh, that was pretty interesting. Okay, so now we go single with children. Okay, and this is by far the lowest net worth. Uh, if you're single and have a child, uh, your net worth was, uh, the median net worth was 36,710. The average net worth was 284,620. So that shows that folks that are single with kids tend to make, uh, the lowest amount of money I would, I would propose. Um, uh, single, uh, a couple with no child, we used to call these dinks, double income, no kids. <laughs> the average income here, or the, I'm sorry, the medium income here was the highest of all groups. It was 251,700. And if you, if you have kids or you know people that have kids, having kids is an expensive proposition and it definitely is not economically adva uh, an advantage for you. Uh, but sure uh, is uh, spiritually and every other way uh, a great experience. But if you are a power couple <laughs> that doesn't have kids, uh, you certainly have uh, an ability to have greater net worth. And and then they said the average net worth so a million three hundred fourteen thousand five hundred sixty dollars. Uh, so let's look at couples with children. Couples with children, uh, the median net worth is 166,300. And then, uh, the average net worth is $879,210. And so we see here that there is a substantial disadvantage, uh, to being single with kids. Uh, that is a tough, tough, uh, position to be in economically. Um, you have the burden of of uh, providing for a child and also providing for yourself without a partner. Okay, so let's take a look at education levels by race uh, from the U.S. Census datum. It says here from 2011 to 2021, the percentage of adults 25 and older who had completed high school increased for all ethnic groups. During this period, uh, for the white non Hispanic group, it went from 92.4 to 95.1%. For black population, it increased from 84.5 to 90.3%.
for the Asian population, it went from 88.6 to 92.9%. And then for the Hispanic population, it increased uh, from 64.3% in 2011 to 74.2% in 2021. So each group improved the number of high school graduates. Uh, and then the second section here, they talk about uh, the percentage of folks with bachelor's degree or higher. And it said, uh, of course, this is for people 25 and above. So for the white population, uh, it went from 34.0% in 2011 to 41.9% in 2021. Um, so for the black population, people with a bachelor's degree or higher uh, went from 19.9% to 28.1%. And then for the Asian population, it went from 50.3 to 61.0%. And then for the Hispanic population, it went from 14 to 18 percent. So uh, this is uh, kind of interesting data um, that uh, does not talk about uh, trade degrees or anything like that, but it's talking about the level of college, college educated folks. And we could certainly uh, work on that a bit and, and try to increase those numbers. Uh, one of the things that's really alarming is the rate of increase of college tuition uh, versus the uh, inflation rate. And college tuitions have been increasing greater than the inflation rate for years. And so uh, this um, is one of the obstacles that people face is the increasing uh, rate of uh, college tuition. Although here we see an increase in the numbers for each ethnic group. Uh, and, uh, and so that's uh, encouraging as well. Okay, let's look at uh, some of the data about uh, out of wedlock births. Um, and this is from the U.S. Census data. And uh, the first article I came upon uh, talked about uh, the uh, community survey uh, that they did back in 2011 that said that the that the highest percentage of poverty seems to be related to the number of out of wedlock births in a in an area. So, said research uh, released last week by the U.S. Census Bureau American Community Survey says states with a higher percentage of out of wedlock births in 2011 tended to have the highest incidence of poverty. And and then when we looked at the 2022 data and the median income that lines up pretty pretty well uh, folks with the uh, with the net worth uh, of i think it was like thirty six thousand dollars tended to be single parents and so that was the lowest net worth of all the different family structures uh, and let's look at further at the data from 2011 and then we'll talk about 11 years later in 2022, look at the trend here. It says nationwide Af African-American women reported the highest rate of out-of-wedlock births at 67.8%. American Indian or Alaskan Native women reported a 
percent rate, while Hispanics reported 43 percent and non-Hispanic whites reported 26 percent. Asian Americans reported the lowest rate of out-of-wedlock births at 11.3 percent. Now the 2022 census, the percentage of out-of-wedlock births for non-Hispanic whites was 21.9 percent. Uh, so it, it decreased about 5 percent there. Uh, well, about 4 percent. For non-Hispanic blacks, it was 69.3 percent. So a slight increase there between 2011 and 2021. For Hispanics, it was 41.6 percent. And so uh, it went down just a little bit, I think, here. Yeah, Hispanics reported 43 percent uh, uh, in the uh, 2011 census. And for uh, American Indians, 59.3%. So pretty high percentage of out-of-wedlock births for uh, the American Indians. And of course, I don't have that data for 2011. Uh, so this percentage of out-of-wedlock births in the resulting income uh, or the uh, resulting net worth of folks in that category is troubling. And that's one of the reasons why you can attribute uh, the lower income of African-American folks. I, I wonder if you took out, uh, if you did a statistical analysis and you took out the number of, uh, of folks uh, that were uh, single with just one kid or, or single with multiple kids, if you took those folks' income out of the equation, if the uh, net worth of the African-American community would go up substantially. And I think the answer there would be yes. Uh, be an interesting study to do uh, and an in interesting hypothesis. Okay, so um, one of the big controversies uh, today is whether or not critical race theory is taught in our K through 12 schools. And, um, uh, you know, some people say that it's just taught in higher education at the college level as a way of looking at different theories. Uh, and then other uh, folks have stated that they know it's being taught in their schools and they point to certain literature uh, that is being read from. And so I thought it might be interesting uh, to take a, a deep dive into that. And I came upon this article in reason.com and it's entitled, Is Critical Race Theory Taught in K through 12 Schools? The NEA, National Education Association, says yes, and that it should be. Uh, and so uh, let's uh, read from this article, uh, the pertinent passages here. And, it, and um, at its yearly annual meeting, they state, conducted virtually over the past few days, the NEA adopted new business item 39, which essentially calls for the organization to defend the teaching of critical race theory. It is reasonable and appropriate for uh, curriculum to be informed by academic frameworks for understanding and interpreting the impact of the past on current society, including critical race theory, says the uh, item. Consistent with its defense of CRT, the NEA will also provide a study that critiques empire, white supremacy, anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity, uh, racism, um, I have a hard time with this word, uh, patriarchy, uh, cis heteropatriarchy, 
capitalism, albionism, and authoro, uh, post-centricism, and other forms of power and oppression at the intersection of our society. The implication is that these critiques are aspects of critical race theory, which is a weird way makes this an example of the activists left basically accepting the activists rights new working definition of CRT as all of the various culture insanity. So they um, they interpret this as being a agreement uh, with uh, the two extremes that this is what critical racism is uh, or critical race theory is. <laughs> like I said critical racism. Uh, I guess that's a Freudian slip. Um, and so this article uh, was by uh, Bobby Sovin, S-O-A-V-E, and it was written in July 6, 2021 at 1 p.m. And he had an update that uh, shortly after his story was published uh, that the uh, that this passage uh, was taken out of the uh, NEA's uh, website. So he said he provided a link of the older version so that you could read it. Uh, and so this brings up a kind of an interesting um, point of view uh, that uh, those uh, in power in the NEA would have liked to have defended CRT, but there was such an uproar about it being taught in the schools uh, that uh, they no longer uh, at least uh, published that they are uh, for this type of approach to teaching children about race and racism. And so um, uh, I think that that is uh, worth noting. Um, and certainly uh, there have been uh, places throughout the country where parents have uh, united against some of the texts and curriculum being uh, uh, presented to our kids. So some literature uh, to watch out for in your kids' uh, uh, textbooks and uh, the things that they are studying. Uh, I got this from um, ChristianPost.com. Uh, it says, watch out for the CRT books being taught in schools. Uh, it says, uh, Woke Baby uh, is one of them. Uh, not My Idea. Uh, not to be an, how not, how to be an anarchist. <laughs> and then another um, children's book, it says, Something Happened to Our Town, a child's story about racial injustice. So, so those those are some books that they believe uh, push this idea of critical race theory. I think there there are some more on the next slide. Uh, more books, um, stamped racism, uh, anarchism, and you is another book that they said to look for. Um, I think you know this is not meant to be an all inclusive list of books. I think that. Um, parents and uh, stakeholders that are concerned about these issues should really look at each textbook and and read some of the pertinent passages uh, in those texts. Know what your kids are reading at school. Uh, I think that's really super important. Uh, I think that uh, 
especially since uh, the I think that one of the previous podcasts I said about 60 percent of the population uh, of teachers in the school are Democrats. Uh, it just goes to to, show, to reason that maybe some of this is creeping in to our curriculum. I don't believe it is nationwide. I do believe that there are pockets of our country where this is being pushed. Uh, but uh, the creep <laughs> uh, might be creeping into your school. And I think it's important uh, that you're aware of what's going on. Uh, I think one of the, maybe the only good thing about the pandemic was that people are taking a harder look at what's being taught in our schools. Um, and I, I think that that's a good thing. Uh, I think to have an intelligent conversation about these ideas, uh, knowing what the ideas are and why you find them objectable uh, is is important. And so uh, I think that these things are are things that we should be paying attention to. Okay, so I have another uh, important uh, piece of information for you. Uh, there is a website, it's called Critical Race Training in Education. And this is a great place for uh, parents to look in it. And it is a, um, a research uh, accumulation by Cornell, a Cornell Law professor. And he's launched this website about critical race theory and curriculum in the United States in hopes of educating concerned parents about how the controversial movement impacts education. And so uh, I went there and it has a big map of the United States and you can click on your particular state and see what's being taught uh, and the view of critical uh, um, practitioners in the area of education. And so I think that this is a great resource. Well, I hope you found this interesting uh, and uh, I hope that uh, I've approached it in a way that is fair to all concerned. Uh, if I wasn't fair, if I misrepresented something, I'd be looking forward to your comments. Please be respectful. I, I tried to be in all my dealings. And so um, without uh, further ado, I will say that I care about everybody. Uh, I hope I wish the best for everybody involved. Um, and I certainly hope that this discussion helps move the uh, conversation toward civil discourse about race and racism in our country.